The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I'm going to try something new today in response to a few listener requests. And I should say how lucky I feel to even be able to use that phrase, listener requests. I've been on here since October of what year? Of 2020. Is that right? Of 2020. Yes, that's right. And right about the time that this goes live, this episode, I will have reached an estimated audience, a repeating audience of 100 people, and will have in about a year and a half's time accumulated about 20,000 listens, which is probably the number of new subscribers and uh, listens that Joe Rogan gets uh, in the time it takes for him to sneeze. But, uh, but I still feel very lucky that anybody is listening at all, because I never really imagined that anybody would. Um, and so the requests were this. The first one was, uh, do more autobiographical stuff. Which again surprises me too, because I assumed that that was the filler many times. Um, you would rather hear good poetry than just hear me talk about autobiographical stuff, wouldn't you? But uh, for one listener out there, uh, that is not the case. And um, another listener said that uh, they listen while driving in the car, basically, or while out doing something that makes it hard to, uh, when an episode ends, to find another one. And so I thought, uh, there really isn't a need if I have about an hour's worth of material a week. There's really no need to put those into two episodes, I don't think. And if anyone disagrees, uh, look in the post description for the email and let me know. But for that reason, um, I'm going to try something new tonight and put something autobiographical first, and that's what I'm about to say. And then after that, I'll do about a half hour or so that I recorded earlier this week on Picasso's painting uh, Guernica. And what I'll do when there is a split episode like this that will be about an hour long is that in the post description I will make a note of when the second part of the episode starts in case there are those out there who just want to skip the first part. So I will just do that. 
And um, I'm especially lucky because the subject, the autobiographical subject today, also came uh, from a request from a listener. I can't remember what episode it was, but I mentioned something about the bookstores of our 20s and how uh, many of us out out there, out everywhere, uh, who likes to read uh, could easily do their own podcast episode of their favorite bookstores or just what the experience of bookstores have been in their lives. And when I went back to make a list of them, I realized that the meaningful bookstores uh, were not in my 20s at all. Uh, that is when I was living in California with my wife, and by then uh, we weren't living near very, very many good used bookstores. I remember going into one of them and finding David S. Reynolds' amazing biography, cultural biography as he calls it, of Walt Whitman. But it was one of those used bookstores that looks like it's been there for 20 years or 30 years. And, and the owner was there, and I'm sure there were cats all around. And there were books stacked on the carpeting that never got vacuumed. And it was one of those stores where you got the impression that the person owning it perhaps owned the space already and they really didn't need to pay rent, and it didn't seem as if he really wanted there to be patrons in the store. It was one of those kinds of places. Uh, there was a, a wonderful place called, uh, uh, I believe it was called the Crown Bookstore, and this was in Corona, California. The other one was in, a, in nearby Riverside. And the Crown place was in the middle of a strip mall, uh, in, in the middle of a large store that once was the uh, main attraction in a strip mall. And it was a bunch of unfolded card tables, and you would just go up and down the rows. And I got many, many good books there that I think I ended up selling after a point. But one of them that I still have and will never get rid of is just a huge, glorious uh, book about Gothic architecture. It has the best photographs and the best diagrams and the best uh, the best everything that I've ever seen about Gothic art. But um, by this time, uh, living with my wife, it was all ordering stuff online. And so I wanted to actually go back to the earliest bookstores that I remember and what they meant to me. And the very first one, actually, uh, I don't remember the books at all. It was a place, I think it was called Dell's. The, the, the manager was an old man named Dell, and it stood on the corner of East 222nd Street and another road in Euclid, Ohio, when I was uh, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And you had to pass up the books and the comic books to get to what my brother and my friends were really going for, which was the uh, glass case of, uh, of baseball cards. So I don't really remember the books at all. There were probably old Ray Bradbury's or, or old, uh, just old 50s paperbacks, but I don't remember the books so much as the baseball cards that we would all go in and look at. 
and the ones we would drool over because we would never have enough money to buy the cards, the ones you would see in the sleeves. I was really proud, and I still have the stack uh, less than 20 feet away from me here, um, in a box of the 1950, I want to say 53 Tops cards uh, from the Yankees. There's an Eno Slaughter and a, uh, oh, what's his name? I know all these people's names except when I'm trying to record something about them. Whitey Ford, a bunch of others. And they're all in horrible condition, but uh, even then I had a great attachment to history, to the idea that something that I can hold in my hand or a place that I can visit has been here, uh, in this case, since the 1950s, since my dad was my age now, that kind of a thing. Um, so I don't remember the books very much at all. There was the book fairs at the Catholic school I went to when I grew up, where they would uh, bring them in in those big rolling bookcases, and they would open up almost like a diptych, and uh, instead of revealing a painting, a devotional painting, it would be two, uh, two bookcases. And I remember getting Richie Tankersley Cusick's, one of her books, one of those uh, uh, junior high horror authors. And of course, Alvin Schwartz's uh, Scary Stories. That's where I first got those. And it's funny because when I was writing all this out, I didn't remember these scholastic book fairs in grade school, but uh, it came up just when I needed to remember it. Uh, in the auditorium, on the stage, uh, behind the, uh, behind the uh, basketball court where we would have gym class, and since my parents were teachers at this school, I'm pretty sure that I got early dibs and last dibs of being able to go into this uh, place where the books were being sold and to get what I could. But the first real bookstore that I remember ever going to and having distinct memories about would have been uh, after, would it have been after? It would have been after. Uh, it would have been just before and immediately after my family moved about 40 miles away from the town where I grew up. But because my parents, because my mother still taught at the school where I was going, and because I wanted to deny the fact that we had moved and didn't want to uh, deal with any of that, I continued going to that school and driving 40 miles every day with my mother. And... Uh, there was also a mall there, uh, the Euclid Square Mall, which now I think is, if it hasn't been torn down, it's got to be pretty close. It's got to be a ghost town. But there was a Walden Books in there, and that was the first time, actually I can date it because I remember the books that I saw, uh, that was the first time I can remember seeing a Stephen King book in hardcover and one of those books is Four Past Midnight, which was released in 1990, which sounds about right. And also King's book, Needful Things, which came out in 1991. So this would have been after we moved that I was still going to this bookstore. And 
the cover of Four Past Midnight and the cover of Needful Things are both very evocative. Needful Things being the name of a antique store that opens in a town, and Four Past Midnight just being uh, an old clock with uh, sinister overtones in the cover art. I also remember seeing Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho on display and wondering what the hell is that about, and I think. Uh, everything that I did not pick the book up or try to read it when I first saw it. That also came out in 1991. Um, so I remember these things. The, the idea of, and, and the things that struck me were these books, hardcover books, on display artwork, the, uh, the author photograph on the back. And I realized it was important because so uh, almost immediately it became an important memory because I think one of the very first books by Stephen King I read was Needful Things. I would have read that in 91, 92, or 93. And already, even then, even if it was only a year or two or three years later, I still had the image firmly fixed in my mind of being in that Walden Books in the Euclid Square Mall and and seeing a book and realizing I could read this and enter this other world, or I could, or or the or the, the idea was, what would it be like to read this book, and and suddenly I had, and so I, I, I even then I remembered those dual feelings, even if there was only a year or two separating them, which is kind of interesting. The other thing I remember about that store was, of course, I, I would go over to the magazines and read Electronic Gaming Monthly and the other video game magazines. And, of course, I also noticed where the Playboys and the penthouses were. And this is going to sound very quaint to anybody out there who, I guess, is younger than 30, maybe even younger than 35, I'm not sure. But uh, I can remember trying to find the courage to hold on to my Electronic Gaming Monthly and also make a grab for one of those magazines and then take it to the back where I could actually go and look at it. I think as far as I got was grabbing the magazine, probably a Playboy, hiding it behind the video game magazine, walking it to the back, probably trying to find some innocuous section that I didn't think anybody would go into and uh, imagining that I could uh, look at some naked women there in the back of a Walden Books and not feel weird or paranoid about it. Um, I don't remember actually looking at it because I was probably just too terrified to do it. And that became a kind of focus for me because uh, not... Not the Playboys, but the bookstore. Uh, I guess the Playboys came later. Um, uh, because malls, again, this dates me. This sounds quaint to anyone who isn't, uh, anyone who is under 30. Malls were the places where you went to hang out, right? And uh, even if you were like me and you were, you were walking around just with your parents, or you would say, uh, meet me over here in 20 minutes. And so I was walking around by myself. Um, even then, it was a fun experience. 
um, I would find a way to uh, go into Foot Locker or Finish Line to look at all the shoes uh, that, that I really wanted to get. But I, always, but I would always be extremely paranoid of leaving, of walking in front of people uh, without having bought anything. It's funny, the, uh, there's, a, there's a documentary about Jack Kerouac called uh, What Happened to Kerouac, and the poet Michael McClure uh, mentions this exact scenario. He says that uh, something about how Jack Kerouac was the most self-conscious person he ever met. And he mentions that exact scenario of just being in a place and having to walk across a room and feeling everybody's eyes on you. I highly doubt that anyone working the cash register at Finish Line or Foot Locker, and Foot Locker was a fairly small store then, so you wouldn't really notice who was coming and going. I doubt any of them ever saw me. But I don't remember ever feeling that way in the Walden books. And that struck me as well. And soon enough, um, after we moved, and I was still stubborn and didn't want to get on with things, that was when I started reading seriously, reading adult books and not just kids' books. The first of those, I'm pretty sure, was Whitley Strieber's Communion and some of his other alien abduction books. But after that, I moved on to Dean Kuntz's books, and for a while, since I'm argumentative and I feel the need to take sides about things that are ridiculous and don't really mean anything, as evidenced by some of the episodes of this podcast, for a while, just as I like to think that I was militantly just a Sega video game player and not a Nintendo video game player, for a while... I felt, uh, well, I just read Dean Koontz. I don't read Stephen King. So that's how I was for a while. And I can remember when, after my parents saw how, how much I was reading and how serious I was about it, uh, that was when I was let in on the fact that adults, many adults, are paid every two weeks. And so they would tell me, we'll buy you a new book every two weeks. And there was a Kmart and a Farmore uh, store, and what was the other one? Um, Kmart, Farmore, and another one of those department stores that uh, have just uh, disappeared off the face of the earth. And I can remember standing in front of these stacks of Dean Kuntz books in these places and planning out which books I would get next. I think Clive Barker was another one. And the, the thrill of that, of looking at the covers and, and the way that the books were designed to match themselves on the shelves and um, just seeing how it was all done. There's an, there was a paperback of Anne Rice's The Witching Hour, which I still remember it to this day, where it said that... Uh, one of the blurbs on the back said that she uh, was very good at writing lush prose and steamy sex. I didn't have to look sex up, but I had to look up prose. What the hell is prose, and what, and how does prose become lush? I had to learn all of these things. And this could really be the reason why I'm so obsessed with uh, have I achieved 
the kind of success that I really think I deserve because half of my earlier serious reading experiences were just as much about um, going to a store with my parents and not having a great deal to do otherwise and just sort of introducing myself to the way that books are printed and how the covers are designed and how they are displayed and how they have quotations about them. Uh, I mean, the first author that I ever knew anything about personally was Stephen King, and uh, I loved his, ended up loving, I still do, all of his afterwords that he addresses to constant reader. Um, I became so attached to those because it showed me that doing this stuff is not magic, it's just what some people do. And if you have someone like Stephen King who writes a good afterword about where his stories come from, and if it also includes some good jokes, you can knock all of this stuff down on a pedestal a little bit, knock it off its pedestal a little bit, and see that it isn't all just uh, highfalutin stuff. Uh, it's extremely human, human voices, indeed. And so I remember that at the Kmarts and the Farmores and this other place that I cannot remember um, the name of. Hills, that's what it is, the Hills Department Store. Um, and they would all have uh, either bookmarks or a little uh, a little chart that showed how much you could save by by shopping with them. If the paperback was four ninety nine, you would only pay four twenty five or something like that. the The introduction that Stephen King gives in the extended version of the Stand, which was also, I think, published around nineteen ninety, I was amazed that he would say he would have an introduction that said read this before buying the book. If you haven't read this before buying the book, I hope you saved your receipt. It was incredible to me that an author out there who apparently had better things to do would be worried about the, uh, worried about whether people who bought his books had saved their receipts in case they wanted to return them. Um, and then at some point, uh, after I moved away from King and Kuntz and the like, and I was convinced that, well, I should be reading William Faulkner. I should be reading these more literary people. And soon after that, when the Ashtabula Mall was built, they had their own Walden books, not just the one that I had in Euclid, but they had another one in the Ashtabula Mall. I wonder how many of them are even left. And so that became my Walden books for a while. And that is when I first saw, for instance, all of William Faulkner lined up on a shelf looking identical and how attractive all of that looks. And it's funny, I can remember seeing, and let me look it up real quick. I can remember seeing a hardcover of Simon Shama's book, Rembrandt's Eyes. Let's see. I can remember seeing that in the Walden books in the Ashtabula Mall. And I want to get a date on when that book was published. That would have been 
history 1999 okay so I would have been 20 when uh, when that book came out it's strange I would have remember would have thought that that was earlier but there we have it uh, that Walden books was the first place that I bought a hardcover Stephen King book nightmares and dreamscapes when it came out I felt terribly proud of that of being able to get it then but as I became more aware of other kinds of books, um, that was the place where I found those too, as well as tarot cards. That's the first place I bought uh, a tarot deck. And um, just as I used to go to the mall with my parents, now I was going there with my friends, buying tarot decks and sitting outside of the Foot Locker, uh, doing spreads, doing tarot spreads on the floor, hoping that everybody walking by is uh, judging us very keenly indeed and and this was around the same time that the name not necessarily the work but just the name Allen Ginsberg first came came into my awareness and so I remember calling that Walden books and saying uh, do you have copies of Allen Ginsberg's Howl it was almost as if that it, it wasn't a name and a title it was as if that whole thing was the title Allen Ginsberg's Howl. And when I first became aware of the Talmud, and I told this story to my rabbi, uh, and he got a great kick out of it, um, when I first became aware of the Talmud and first started reading about the history of religion in Karen Armstrong's book, A History of God, um, so much of it flew right over my head, but somehow, for some reason, the idea of the Talmud, of what I thought it was, of what, of how Karen Armstrong presented it and what I thought it might be, it prompted me to call the Walden Books in, in Ashtabula, Ohio, to say, do you have a copy of the Babylonian Talmud? And the poor girl on the other end of the line, um, had to look that up and she had to tell me I must have sounded like I was still in high school because I was and she had to tell me this is 22 volumes and nine hundred dollars and that was when I hung up very quickly but uh, it was just little things like that um, and actually one of the one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had with a book and a bookstore, one of the most vivid memories uh, happened at that at that bookstore. It was a it was a Friday night. It was either in the fall of nineteen ninety six or in the first few months of nineteen ninety seven. I remember this because I was taking a creative writing class in high school. And our teacher was making us uh, do a journal, and that is the earliest extended journal of mine, I believe, that I, that I still have. And so I still have the moment written down, but um, I was told by one of my teachers in school that one book you should go and look for is Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. And by this time, I was a senior in high school. And I no longer wanted to pretend, I'm not sure that I pretended for very long at all. It's not like I was rebelling against anything, but 
Um, I no longer wanted to pretend that I needed to go to the Friday night football games, right? So I made a point of taking the car out to the Ashtabula Mall on a Friday night and going to the store and finding a copy of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. And it was cold. It was the winter. Uh, the car, I'm pretty sure, it was either a yellow Chevy Cavalier that when you turned it on and tried to turn the heat on, the whole car ended up smelling like syrup. Um, and s soon after that broke down. It may have been that car. And uh, I can just remember leaving the mall and uh, walking out to the car, walking out to the parking lot. And it was important somehow. I, I didn't know anything about race. I didn't know anything about what Invisible Man was about. I didn't know anything about Ralph Ellison. But I knew that I was uh, doing this thing instead of going to the football game. I knew that I was out by myself on a Friday night in high school uh, buying this 600-page book. And so it was meaningful to me that it was called Invisible Man, because I certainly felt invisible in my own way. Not, not in a negative way, like, woe is me, or I wish people saw me, or something like that. Um, it was just a thing of having left the mall and standing by the car and seeing my breath in the, uh, in the air because of how cold it was and just listening to either the silence of the parking lot, the silence of winter in Northeast Ohio, uh, after a good lake effect snow, that kind of thing, or maybe even the distant sounds of people coming out of the other stores, the, the larger Kmart, the one that I would end up working at uh, later that summer, or places like Dillard's or JCPenney or these other places where you'd be buying other things. And just standing there and feeling with this book called Invisible Man in my pocket now uh, that I was on the right track somehow even if nobody else was there to recognize the moment or notice me at all. And that's a really vivid, uh, a really vivid memory for me. The next one is another Walden Books, and this would have been uh, only a few months after the, the Friday Night with Invisible Man. There was uh, another Walden Books in a city called Mentor, Ohio. And that was a place where uh, if there was nothing to do in the place that we had moved to, which there very usually was, very there was nothing to do there, uh, the next populous place, if you didn't want to drive all the way to Cleveland, um, you would drive to Mentor. They would have a larger mall, uh, a bigger uh, a bigger main drag full of stores and Taco Bells and actual restaurants and uh, coffee shops and things like that. And uh, there was a Walden Books in this store, as in, the, in this mall as well. And not only did I have the great luck the year before, this would have been in spring of 1996, of, um, this is a small digression, but it's worth telling, 
um, I can recall very clearly uh, when my relatives came over for Easter and one of my aunts or uncles mentioned, uh, have, have any of you seen this movie called Seven with uh, Brad Pitt and uh, Morgan Freeman? So after the family all left, I went and got that movie from the uh, video rental place. And that is the only time, I'm pretty sure, the only time that I watched a movie twice, right in a row, immediately after, just following on one another. And the next day was uh, a Sunday, I'm pretty sure. And my mother was still working at the same uh, grade school. And I asked her, um, if you happen to, you know, swing by the mall, will you go into Walden Books and look for a copy of Dante's Divine Comedy? I didn't know it was in three parts. All I knew was that... Uh, that uh, Brad Pitt apparently did not enjoy having to study it in the movie Seven, and um, being a a curious Catholic at the time, um, I felt like I needed to read it, and it was poetry. Um, I had just done or was planning to do a paper in high school on Milton's Paradise Lost, so that long poems were always with me even then, and. My mother came home with Alan Mandelbaum's uh, translation of the Inferno, with the uh, with the Italian on the left and English on the right, and I can remember the very moment that I first got uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the Dante similes, and that is uh, was just a huge moment of of realizing I can read poetry. And, and the, the images that uh, Dante felt uh, entering the wood or leaving it or whatever it was, he felt like someone, like, um, like a swimmer who has left the, left the rough waters and turns back to look at the waters that he has just left. And I remember spending so much time on that first page of Dante and suddenly finding myself able to follow what he was saying and how he was saying it. Miraculous, uh, astounding thing to suddenly have happen. Um, so that was that Walden books. Um, but uh, later on, about a year after that, this would have been in April of 97 or so, was when I first became aware, truly aware, of T.S. Eliot and I have Stephen King to thank for my early introductions to that because he has a book called The Wastelands. He uses a lot of Eliot, obviously, in that book and in others. And in his book, It, uh, many of the chapters have epigraphs from William Carlos Williams Patterson. And Salem's Lot has an epigraph from Wallace Stevens. And so I owe a great deal of my earliest exposure to good American poetry to uh, Stephen King, but I never went to actually get the book, right? Um, I did get the collected poems, 1909 to 1962, uh, in hardcover from the Ashtabula Mall uh, Walden Books. 
But on this night, it was another night driving out by myself, and what I found instead of the collected poems was just um, a little, what must be like a four by seven, a strangely shaped book of the Wasteland 75th anniversary edition with an essay by Christopher Ricks at the back. And it was that book, that little gold book, that I carried with me in my pocket when I went away to uh, college. And as I think I've said before, um, thinking about college orientation, uh, it's not anything anybody said that I remember. It is uh, realizing that I could escape to the bathroom at any moment and read from the wasteland instead. And Christopher Ricks is another thing, the great uh, British uh, literary critic. Uh, his, he wrote the introduction to the Signet classic uh, of Paradise Lost, of Milton's Paradise Lost. And so I owe a great deal of him, too, to really introducing me to what a, uh, what a literary critic who is not drowning in theory can do by introducing someone to not just John Milton, but to uh, T.S. Eliot as well. So I remember buying that book. Let me see what else I have here. Yes, T.S. Eliot and Dante. I remember buying that book, the little gold wasteland book, and driving further on from Mentor into another town called Painesville. And Painesville is uh, a place where uh, Lake Erie College is, and that's where I went away, quote unquote, went away 40 miles away from home to college, uh, wasting a great deal of money there that I only really paid off uh, in the last year or so, if you can believe that. Um, but in any case, there was a, uh, a wonderful restaurant there called Perkins, and they had, to my taste at the time, and probably to my taste now, I still don't have a very uh, a very uh, refined palate. They had amazing macaroni and cheese. So there I am, 17 years old, with my copy of The Wasteland, eating a side of macaroni and cheese, because that's probably all I have enough money for, a side of mac and cheese and a, and a glass of Coke, and reading The Wasteland. And as it happened, I believe, I'm almost certain that this was 10 years to the day before I got married, which is its own strange sort of confluence of things. But just uh, the idea of driving in the car by yourself, of being able to buy something by yourself, of having it be this treasure, again, like Invisible Man, in this case being this tiny pocketbook of this famous poem. Um, I can remember going to repeating that experience later buying, by buying uh, Burton Raphael's translation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight from the same store and driving off to the same Perkins and uh, reliving that kind of experience. But the first one was with the wasteland. The, the, the whole thing is right there um, that a, uh, a young wannabe uh, aspiring poet could ask for the car, the road, a little bit of money, um, 
a sacred text of some kind, a only a real, only a, a tiny inkling of what it all means, of what T.S. Eliot means, of where he came from, of what he meant when he says London. Uh, I had no idea what London or Vivian Eliot or him working at the bank and all of this stuff. I had no knowledge of any of that. It was just the sound of the words and knowing that this was a revered thing and wondering how do you not just, I mean, it's right there if it's egotistical at 17 or not. It's not just how do you read a thing like this, but how do you write something that has the same echo as this. And uh, it's all right there. Uh, the car, the store, a little bit of money, a sacred text, an inkling of what it might all mean, an inkling of what I might be able to do myself, and just sitting there. Uh, nobody really noticing me unless it's to refill my Coke and um, eating some mac and cheese. Um, and that takes me really up until the end of high school. Those were the bookstores. The ones after that were mostly online, mostly Amazon. And ever since then, there's been a string of half-price bookstores, mostly the one that... that uh, uh, that is about 10-15 minutes away from where I live now and that place has become a nice bit of escape. I left one out. Um, I left a very good one out. Um, when I was 21, 20 or 21 or so and having a fight with my girlfriend at the time, I see the, I see the image right in my head um, of going behind uh, the books in my shelves and finding the little cup where I was quote-unquote trying to save money, grabbing all of it and not running off to the bar, not running off uh, anywhere scandalous, but running off to Borders. And that is where I bought a copy of the, uh, the Finnish epic, The Kalevala. And I left the place, uh, what, 20 bucks 20 bucks poor, still fighting with my girlfriend, but uh, with this huge, fucking amazing brick of a poem in my hands, and sitting there in, in an hour reading the introduction to it, and then getting to the opening lines. If anyone has not found Keith Bosley's Oxford World Classics uh, uh, translation of Elias Lunrot's the Kalevala, just stop whatever the hell you're doing. Turn me off and go and buy that book. Um, but I went to an Eaton Park and sat at the counter because I was probably, since I was fighting with my girlfriend, I probably wanted to just talk to another girl. And instead, uh, the waitress comes over, who's probably my age or a little older, and she sees the big book. She asks what it is. Uh, she gives you the, uh, the Bill Hicks punchline, not uh, what are you reading, but what you're reading for, that kind of thing. And uh, my one-liner to get the girl's attention was, I would like to write a poem like this myself someday, 
which uh, got her to walk away quickly. Um, but I can that I can remember that that counter and reading the Kalevala. Um, but the half price half price books, and uh, in in suburban Pittsburgh, there was a time there when I was selling so many books there constantly that I would bring the bag in and someone would say would uh, and one of the workers there would say would someone please help Mr. Miller with his bags and for the longest time I couldn't quite understand why I was selling so many books and as it happened I sold so many books to empty out uh, our second bedroom and that is where my daughter is now and it is still a relief um, after the stress of, after a stressful day of parenting, after a stressful year of COVID, stressful more than a year of COVID, it is still such a relaxing thing to just walk into that half-price bookstore and just look around. Now, my friend, a, a listener, said to me, do the bookstores of your 20s, and uh, this is what I did instead, and I hope it was worth, uh, I hope it was worth listening to. And coming up next will be a bit of Pablo Picasso. Thank you for listening, if you are indeed still listening. Any comments? or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.